Nice, nice. Yeah, it's. I remember when, and we talked about this brief, uh, briefly when uh, we we were doing the interview a couple of weeks ago. Um, but I remember the whole, you know, kind of spectacle around the whole case, just because it, um, you know, it was very prominent. It was something that kind of took a long time for justice really to be able to uh, even be served. Um, but for people that aren't familiar with the Mark Jensen case, um, just to kind of sum it up for everyone, in 1998, um, a lady by the name of Julie Jensen was married to a gentleman by the name of Mark Jensen. Uh, they resided in Pleasant Prairie, Wisconsin. Um, she died. Um, it seemed to be of natural causes initially, um, but as more details kind of came out and investigations were had, um, it, it was found that Mark actually did some nefarious things that which led to her death. Um, so it took about 10 years. It went from 1998. It was until 2008 uh, for him finally to get convicted for murder. Um, but then there were some things that happened afterwards as well, where there's details, um, some information that may have been used that the Supreme Court decided they were able to use. And then there was, you know, appeals toward, uh, to it. And then it got overturned and then it was a whole thing. So um, Angelina was there firsthand. Um, she was involved uh, with things as a progressive. Uh, were you involved from the beginning of everything or when did, when did you get involved with the, the whole case? So I got involved in the case probably late 2006. Okay. And then worked on it for almost a year until the trial in 2008, 2007. Hmm. I think we started at the end of 2007 and went spilled over into 2008. Hmm. Um, but I have to say, I know there's been some discussion that it appeared to be natural causes, but Bob Jamboy, who was the district attorney at the time, hmm. he was called to the scene the night that Julie Jensen died because he's supposed to be called whenever there's a suspicious death. Hmm. And he immediately knew that this was not natural causes. He saw Julie and he just had this intuition that kind of, you know, in Kenosha, I believe it was until after high school uh, where they actually had a relationship and actually kind of connected with each other and kind of moved on, went to college and stuff, kind of both worked in a similar field um, until they eventually, you know, got married or, or whatnot. Um, but then, as we see kind of with relationships all of the time, um, especially when people have children, um, it seemed to be like maybe around the time after the first child uh, was born where the, the rift really began. Um, do you want to kind of go into that a little bit? Yeah, so they did know each other in high school, but they didn't really connect until, I think in, in college, mm. they reconnected and um, got married after college. They did have their first child, and it does seem from all that we've heard and from all that we've observed in um, journals and calendars that their relationship started to deteriorate after the birth of their first son, and then really um, got worse after the birth of their second son, which I think was maybe 2002, no, I'm sorry, 1992. Mm. Um, and Julie actually had a, a little fling, a weekend fling with um, someone she met and immediately confessed that to Mark because she felt so guilty and wanted to preserve their marriage and work on their marriage. Um, but it their marriage did not get any better mm. after that. And Mark was very angry and never really let go of that anger um, for the next six years. Mm. Yeah, and there was, um, there was things that were happening, right? Um, so after she confesses, you know, and, and says, you know, says, hey, this happened. I don't want to hide this from you. I love you or, or whatnot. Let's do what we can to kind of, you know, try to repair the marriage, repair the relationship. They have a child at the time, so, you know, it's incentive to want to do something like that. Um, and as, as far as I know, or from what I grasp, it seemed like he was 
receptive to that or at least made it seem like that was the case although truly never really letting it go by doing things like leaving explicit photos around the the yard and then making it seem like it wasn't him or he had no idea or it's her fault that all of this is happening but yeah exactly i don't know if he tried to get over it and if he was genuine in his desire to try to get over it but he never did get over it and he did for the next six years after she confessed until he killed her he engaged in what we can only describe as a campaign of torture, a psychological torture, where every time he would get upset or angry with her or the feelings would come up again, his anger, he would get these pornographic pictures or semi-pornographic pictures that appeared to be it would have the image of a woman that appeared to be Julie Jensen, like from the hair color and the hairstyle. You could never really see the full face. Um, engaged in sexual acts with a man, um, usually involving the genitals of the man. And he would place those pictures for her to find outside the house, around the house, in their backyard, in their home. And she would find these and think that she was being stalked by that man mm -hmm. that she had had that brief relationship with. And she was always honest with Mark about having found these things. And of course, he would just lie and pretend that it wasn't him and then blame her for the fact that this was happening. Mm -hmm. And not only did he do that, but then he pretended that he would find these pictures at work. He worked in Racine at the time. Mm -hmm. He would tell her that they had been delivered to the office in an envelope and he found them or that they were tucked under um, his windshield wiper blade of his car parked in the parking lot at work. She'd get calls where people, someone would hang up every time she'd pick up. And of course it all happened when Mark wasn't home. And as we dug into it, we found out that he never got this stuff at work. No one at work ever heard him talk about it. Nothing was ever delivered to the front desk because they open all the mail there because it was an investment um, firm. Mm -hmm. By law, they op the, the receptionists open all the mail and then they decide where it needs to go. So they would open all the mail and they said they never got anything like that delivered for Mark Jensen. Mm -hmm. So we knew that it was Mark who was doing this. And in fact, Julie called the Pleasant Prairie Police Department several times to report that this was happening. And at first, the Pleasant Prairie Police Department believed that it was someone else, too, because, you know, what reason did they have not to believe Mark and Julie Jensen? Mm. Um, but as they did their investigation, you know, they came to realize, too, that it was Mark Jensen. They even suggested doing, um, putting like a tap on the phone so that they could track the number that was calling because they had a landline at that time. It was, you know, 1998 through, um, no, I'm sorry, it was leading up to 1998. And, you know, every time they would do that, the phone calls would stop. So then, after this happened a few times, after a few years, the officer said to Julie, look, please, we think it's your husband. I know you don't want to believe that, but we think it is. Don't tell him that we're putting this trap on the phone. Just see what happens. And if it's not him, then fine. We can all, we'll all know that for sure, right? Mm -hmm. But Julie couldn't do it. She was too honest. So she told him. Mm. She told Mark. And sure enough, the call stopped. Mm. And then when the officer came back, he said, you told him, didn't you? And she said, yes, I did. I can't keep, I can't lie to him. Not after what happened, you know, during that fling. I have to be completely honest with him. Mm. At one point, they even hired a private investigator, probably at Julie's insistence. Um, and even the private investigator concluded that it was Mark. Mm. You know, he didn't have hard proof, but that... Different way, and, it, and as things progress, you kind of, at least leading up to maybe even weeks or days before she, she passes, she, it seems like it finally eventually kind of clicked with her, um, but by that time it almost seemed like it was too late for her, you know? It really seemed that Julie struggled 
with what to believe. And, you know, I think Mark Jensen is is and was a very manipulative person and he knew how to manipulate her so she started to have these suspicions that mark um was still very angry with her and perhaps even wanted her dead Mm. and she told some people this she told her son's teacher at school she told a neighbor she even wrote this letter that we've talked about but she and she told the police officer because over time she had developed a friendship with this pleasant prairie police officer who had come to her home so many times and tried to help her mm-hmm. and she told him too i think i think my husband wants to kill me but i think inside her head she just couldn't really believe that that could really be true i mean they had two small children together they had known each other so long they had built a life together it's one thing to think your husband wants to divorce you and that he's having an affair but to think that he wants to kill you it's just i don't know i think it would be really hard to take that leap to really believe that that's that's Mm. gonna happen right no that's true i mean especially like you said having two young children having lived together and, you know, built a life with each other for so long, you know, um, it's, I mean, I, I could only imagine how I would feel dealing with that, coming to even an inkling of an idea of someone that I've invested my entire life into and have, you know, maybe have done things that were wrong and we've had our ups and downs, but through it all have tried to get through it and have, at least it, it seemed like you were making it through it. So, yeah, that's that's intense. And that it was going to be him. But then there's also another situation when he uh, basically kind of abruptly stopped with his torment as well. And that's when he developed a relationship with someone he was working with. Uh, and eventually, as things progress and everything happens, he eventually ends up with, which is... Um, very telling in my opinion too but can, let's can we speak on that a little bit uh, the situation with him and the evidence of you know him clearly having um, a relationship with someone while he's married with his wife um, that eventually in my opinion helped kind of solve everything that happened yeah so um Mark met this woman at a work conference who worked for the same company. They didn't, in the beginning, they didn't live even in the same state. Mm. So she, I believe, was living in St. Louis at the time, or at least that's where the conference was. I think she was living there too. Mm. And so they met at this conference and developed feelings and they started communicating with each other, mostly by email and by phone. And she would fly out to visit him. He would see her in St. Louis under the guise of he's going for a conference. Mm. And their relationship did develop. They began an affair, it was a sexual affair, and she um, ended up coming to the Racine office where he worked um, on several locations as well. And so that was interesting in that as soon as his relationship with this woman, her first name is Kelly, when that relationship really started to heat up and get intense, that's when all that torture of Julie stopped. Mm. So now that he was distracted and he was busy with another woman, he didn't need to torture his wife anymore. But what we see, because they did a lot of email communication, is that their relationship, as it's progressing, turns into from beyond sexual to I love you, I miss you, I can't wait to see you, we should run away together, let's go on a trip together. And then Kelly, who was also married at the time, said, well, we have to figure out what we're doing. Are we really taking this relationship to the next level? And Mark said, well, I want to. And she said, well, how about we do this? How about we give it until the end of the year and then we need to figure out if we're moving forward or if we're going to let it go because we can't keep doing this. Mm. And so she kind of set this time, this deadline of December 1998 for them to figure out what was going to happen with their relationship. And at one point she even asked him, well, 
I know what I'm going to do if we're going to move this forward. What are you going to do? How are you going to take care of your situation? Mm. And he wouldn't really give her an answer about what he was going to do. And she even called him out on it in one of the emails. She says, you're a cryptic bastard. Why, you know, something to that effect. She used the word cryptic. Why are you being so cryptic and not tell me what you're going to do? Mm. Well, it's because at that point, he'd already started thinking about killing his wife. And we know this because we have the dates on the emails and we ha can see his internet search history. Mm. So there's a lot going on all at that same time. Mm. Wow. wow. That's, that's interesting, especially to see, you know, he seems to be a relatively smart individual, right? Yes. Um, but sometimes the ego, even with being an incredibly intelligent individual, can be your demise. Absolutely. Just being, knowing what he can do, feeling like he's going to be able to get away with it, but making the simple mistake of having a paper trail of everything that he did, just being so, I don't know, just his ego being to the point where it's like, oh, there's no way that I'm gonna get, I'm not gonna get away with it. And seeing maybe even, man, seeing how things kind of played out after her death and then him being so quick to move Kelly into his home mm -hmm. and it's just like man it's just so brazen it's yeah it was brazen but you know I okay so I'm no psychological expert or psychiatric expert but I've read a lot of psychological reports and I think he fits the classic profile of a psychopath mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. and being narcissistic mm -hmm. and that certainly described Mark Jensen I think, in my opinion, based on everything that I saw. And, you know, I talk about this deadline that Kelly set for December 1998. Mm. And sure enough, Julie Jensen is dead December 3rd, mm. 1998. Um, the other thing that we saw is he, Mark did all these internet searches, and then he, he did delete those internet searches, but they were still recoverable. Mm from the computer during a forensic examination of the computer. And you know, you have to keep in mind too that this is 1998 and not a lot of people were even on the internet at the time. It was kind of the inception of the popularity of the internet. I think, I don't even think I was on the internet. I remember when I graduated from law school in 1995, someone was telling me about email mm. and it, we had just started using email to communicate with one another. So, you know, you have to take yourself back in time to remember that not a lot was known about the internet at mm. that time. And that was one of the big things that convinced us that Mark Jensen was responsible for Julie Jensen's death is mm. not only were there these searches on the internet, but they only happened when Mark Jensen was home. Mm. So Julie Jensen was a stay-at-home mom. Her youngest son went to preschool and her oldest son was in elementary school. So she had a lot of time during the day when she had no children and no husband. Mm. Not a single internet search for anything mm. during those hours. Wow. Not even looking up recipes, gardening, book clubs. You know, she was in a book club, not looking up anything on the internet for any of her interests. Mm. These internet searches that we found that would lead someone to think a person is researching how to kill another person all happened after seven o'clock at night, on the weekends, and during like certain days off, like national holidays, when Mark Jensen would have been home from work. Mm, wow. So, mm -hmm. yeah, that's, and you know, the more you know, I'm sure he looks back and thinks about everything that he's done now. Well, maybe, well, maybe he doesn't. He probably, honestly, probably is still doubling down, at least based off of everything that I've seen and kind of his just his demeanor in court and even through like watching the interrogation video of him is just yeah he probably he probably still feels like he didn't do it although he knows deep down that he did because he was there um so so as things kind of progress so all of this goes on they pronounce Julie dead 
they figure out that, hey, this clearly, just looking at the scene uh, from arrival, that there some some sort of foul play was in was in hand uh, came into play. So they do the uh, they do the interrogation of him, and he basically at that point he can admits that he was the person that was leaving all of the the photos, um, which kind of inadvertently became the nail in the coffin, which kind of showed his character to be that of someone that would hold a grudge for so long and put on a facade of everything being all right or oh I have nothing I I didn't know anything of you know anything like this would even happen so then them cracking that and then him going on saying oh I I just watched her die you know I didn't want to call the police because she told me not to call the police or don't take me to the hospital um and I know you you were you worked um with the investigator that basically was arrived on the scene right away and was doing a lot of the interrogation and looking at all of the evidence. As all of this is kind of going on and more things are kind of just kind of like coming out, um, what was the process kind of like trying to piece all of this together? Like trying to piece things to his personality? Yeah, it was, it was, time-consuming um, I mean well worth the effort of course but it takes a lot of time and a lot of effort to put it all together mm. so you know we had we knew that there was ethylene glycol crystals in her body we knew that there was ethylene glycol um, in her stomach her gastric contents and in her brain and so then we had to figure out, okay, so how do we prove, how do we refute his defense mm. that she killed herself? Mm. Because that was his defense. Well, she did this to herself. Right. Like, oh, I thought it was a, you know, first he was telling people it was a medication interaction or, mm. you know, um, but really then it turned into, well, she must have committed suicide. So we had to, we had the internet search history, we had the emails, we had his relationship with with Kelly. Mm. Um, we had what the neighbors were telling us. And we just had to kind of put it all together in a timeline and then talk to everyone that was involved along the way to say, okay, Mark was saying that Julie was really depressed and that she lost all this weight and wouldn't even want to get out of bed in the morning. Did, did you see this? And we talked to all these different people. And her friends said, no, we mm. didn't see that. Um, his co-worker, David, whose wife was also friends with Julie, heard Mark say these things. And so he told his wife, look, it sounds like Julie's really depressed. Mm. Maybe you should call her and cheer her up. And she did. And Julie was totally fine. There was no depression. Mm. You know, yeah, her relate her marriage was not the best, but she was happy with her children, happy with her life, certainly not showing any signs of being depressed or suicidal the way Mark was portraying it to all these different people. So we really had to like pull everyone together and line up all the stories to prove that Mark was not only lying, mm. but he was doing it to create this image that Julie was suicidal. Mm in in you know to further his plan to murder her mm. and that kind of leads us up to the letter that was left where as you said as you said you know you go around you speak to all these people she's not showing signs of depression but yet you know they're going to counseling or whatever may be happening and he's saying things to kind of paint a picture of her being depressed or crazy she actually ends up getting on antidepressants um at a certain point um and with all of this all of this happening she decides i mean i believe she's she found the post-it note first right with the list of the miscellaneous contents that you could surmise would be used to, to kill someone um, her kind of taking a photo of that and then writing her letter and then delivering it to her neighbor just in case anything were to happen yeah so yeah she came across this post-it note on her on Mark's desk at home 
and the post-it note had a list of things that could be used to kill someone. So it was Librium, Nicotrel patches, bag hands, shells. Um, I don't remember all the things that were on there, but it was a list of like ideas of what could be used to murder someone. Mm. And so she did take a picture of it. She talked to her sister-in-law about it. And then she gave the picture to the neighbor along with this letter where she says... You know, my relationship with my husband has deteriorated to the polite superficial. I think he wishes me harm. I, you know, I pray I'm wrong. But I just want everyone to know that I would never harm myself. I love my children. My life revolves around my three Ds, as she called them, which was actually her license plate, standing for her two sons, David Douglas, and then Mark being daddy. Mm. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, clearly she let it be known, like, I wouldn't just kill myself. And then for him to kind of for his argument to be, well, no, oh, I think she killed herself. And then the evidence of the body, the positioning of the body, and then the evidence that it appeared to be of suffocation, um, which also kind of speaks to his character and maybe, you know, him being a psychopath or a sociopath and just wanting the job to be done and just being fed up and just saying, all right, well, this is just taking too long. I'm just gonna just do it myself. And then still just trying, it's, wow. It's, yeah, yeah it's, so in, in the, all of these details, you know, looking back at the case and me being much younger at the time, back in 2008 when this was happening, it, like to me, it was like, oh, it's interesting. This, you know, it's on national news. People are talking about this, but kind of like, just kind of being like, all right, well, still to this day is still trying to get things overturned. Mm -hmm. So with that letter, I mean, this letter has become, I would say, a very integral part of the whole ordeal because it's caused so much um, good things and bad things. There's been a lot of turmoil behind it. And it, I mean, it honestly is kind of keeping all of this relevant to this to this day. Um, so in 2008, he was con he ended up being convicted um, he got life in prison. Um, watching back the tape of his of his sentencing, um, just looking at him, like his reaction to the sentencing is just kind of like I don't know. Yeah, it's just like how yeah. do you like you're. He told you that the crime that you committed was so egregious, and. I have to give you the, the maximum penalty because it would do a disservice to other people that received life in prison. Um, hearing that, if someone said that to me, I, I mean, I, I would feel kind of a way about it. Like I would kind of yeah. at least recollect or try to like flashback and be some emotion. yeah, you know, I'd either be distraught or be like, what are you talking about? There's no way I'm worse than, you know, there would be something I would either project or I would show my real emotion and him not showing anything at all to me kind of is the, the writing on the wall. You know? Yeah, well, that's his, that was his pattern throughout. I mean, even when Julie died, people were describing his behavior at her funeral as if he was at a cocktail party. Mm. You know, his young young wife, she was 40. Right. The mother of his two children is dead just a few feet away, just a few days earlier, and he's acting like it's a cocktail party. And then neighbors say a few days after Julie's death was garbage day, mm. just a few days later. Mm bags and bags of garbage out on the curb with Julie stuff crammed in there. Like he was purging the house of Julie Jensen. Wow. And you know, you talked about um, hastening or fa trying to get her to die faster. Hmm. You know, what maybe a lot of people don't know is that their older son, yeah. but he had promised his kids that if mom wasn't better by the time they came home from school that day, they would take her to the hospital. Mm. So he needed her dead before the kids came home from school. Mm. 
And that's why, you know, he had given her these small doses of ethylene glycol, the antifreeze, and it just was not working fast enough. Mm. And so that's why he had to take, I don't know if it was a pillow, I think there was a bathrobe nearby that he weirdly mentioned in his interview and I thought why does he keep referring to this bathrobe that's nearby but mm. I made me wonder if maybe he took the bathrobe and held it over her face mm. so yeah he was emotionless about all of it and I think you kind of have to be in order to be the kind of person that intentionally murders someone mm. with that much forethought right yeah and then even like just to kind of bring it back to the relationship that kind of was the motive for a lot of this to move the woman that you were having an affair with your wife that you allegedly may or may not have murdered even within like the same year is incredibly suspect but i mean within months is like like well, well and she was at the house for visits within weeks. Mm. And he actually asked his coworker, his friend David, um, I think I I think I might have Kelly, the mistress, mm. come to Julie's funeral. And his friend David said, That's a really bad idea. You don't want to do that. And so she didn't come. He didn't take that advice. But that's his mindset. Yeah, like, so oh well, crazy. you know, I can move on. She's dead. Mm, yeah, that is, for a kid, for the children, you know, to have two sons dealing with, I mean, if you, if you don't feel anything, that's one thing, but you have children as well, and their mother is, is dead, and now you're even contemplating bringing another woman to, to her funeral, bringing the woman to your home where they still live, so they can like see her that's not their mother like the emotional trauma that that could lead to is it's just it's he clearly cares about no one but himself and that's it you know he he doesn't care about anyone but himself to do all that then to tell his kids that their mother committed suicide right. okay so your mom was not willing to live her life for you, mm. you know, she decided to commit suicide, leave you two without a mother, then to take that further and move Kelly in, mm. and then to take that even further at the time that he's charged, mm. to say, oh, okay, well, not only did she kill herself, but she's trying to frame me for murder. This mm. was her plan all along. Mm. She wanted to kill herself, and she wanted me to go to prison for my entire life so that her children would be parentless. Mm. You know, no one who knew Julie Jensen described her that way. She was not that cunning or evil. Only Mark was that cunning and evil. Hmm. And it kind of, I mean, it shows with the multiple attempts to try to get... I mean, well, I mean, I suppose I understand because no one wants to be in prison for the rest of their life. And I imagine you would do anything that you could do to try to get out of prison. I suppose. But, I mean, the just every little detail of now the, the after he gets convicted, he ends up getting life. But now he has his... He has his lawyers looking at every detail of the case, and now they're looking at overturning the the judgment due to the letter because he was not he was not able to cross examine Julie because she was not alive, but she would be a key witness in the whole case. Right, even though she's not alive because he, he killed, killed her. her. Right, yeah. right. So mm -hmm. could we uh, get into that a little bit? What was what was that like even? hearing that this is being brought back up because of of this detail. Yeah, it was really upsetting to hear that that was going to be the appeal because, you know, before we went to trial, we had a hearing in front of the judge about the admissibility of Julie Johnson's letter. And then based on that decision, that was appealed before we had the trial. Hmm. And that went up to the Wisconsin Supreme Court. And the Wisconsin Supreme Court said, this letter can be admitted 
if you can establish state, meaning us, that Mark Jensen is the reason for Julie's unavailability. So basically, Mark Jensen, you have forfeited your right to confront Julie Jensen as a witness because you caused her death. Mm. So we did what the Wisconsin Supreme Court asked us to do. We went back to court. We called witnesses. We had like a I don't know, five, six day hearing hmm. with all these witnesses. It was like a mini trial. And when we were done, the judge decided, yes, there, Mark Jensen caused the unavailability of Julie Jensen based on the standard of evidence. And so the letter is admissible. Hmm. So we thought we did what we were supposed to do hmm. based on the law given to us by the Wisconsin Supreme Court. And only after the conviction, after we were done, did the U.S. Supreme Court come down with a different case that said, okay, now instead of saying he's made her unavailable, it has to be he made her unavailable because he didn't want her to testify in mm. court. Which, you know, makes sense if, like, let's say I'm charged with a crime and in fact, Mark Jensen was, when he was charged, he tried to get rid of one of the key witnesses. He mm. tried to get rid of Ed Klug, who had some damning evidence against him. So if he had succeeded in getting rid of Ed Klug, mm. we could prove that he tried to get rid of him and Ed Klug was unavailable for trial. Yeah. But we didn't have that for Julie Jensen. I mean, we tried to say, well, he didn't want her to testify at a divorce proceeding, mm. but the court didn't really want to hear that. Mm. And so that was disturbing to us because we felt like we had done it the right way based on what our Wisconsin Supreme Court told us to do. Right. And then it goes up on appeal. And the Wisconsin Court of Appeals says, well, we're not going to take up the issue about whether the letter should have been admitted or not. They said there was such overwhelming evidence of Mark Jensen's guilt and the fact that Julie Jensen told other people and that that information was all admissible. This letter really was just some extra. Hmm. It was not the make or break of the case. Hmm. You know, it was important to us because we felt like if Julie wrote this letter, Julie's voice should be heard. Mm. But it certainly wasn't the linchpin of evidence that some people have claimed it to be. Mm. I think all that other evidence that we talked about, including that computer forensic evidence and the toxicology evidence, mm. to me, that's what what convicted him. That's what convinced the jury. You know, when you look at his internet history from December 2nd to December 3rd, so he's looking up the progression of symptoms for someone suffering from ethylene glycol poisoning. Mm. But when he was interviewed and he's asked, well, how was Julie on December 2nd? How was she the morning of July 3rd? He says she's basically comatose. He had to prop her up in bed the morning of December 3rd so that the kids could say goodbye to her. So I don't think she's the one getting out of bed, walking down the hall to their um, home office and getting on their dial-up internet right. to look up her own progression of symptoms. Mm -hmm. He's doing that. Right. So I agreed with the Court of Appeals. The Court of Appeals got it right. That letter is not did not convict Mark Jensen. What convicted Mark Jensen was all the other evidence that we had. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that, honestly. His, like, his character, like, it's, it, in my opinion, and I'm just a regular person just looking at everything that's going on, but, it, I mean, it's like, like, man, you, you clearly were doing something nefarious. And, like, even like going back to just like looking at both of their characters, right? Like you you can't even really assume that she would be the one looking anything up on the internet because she never uses the computer at all. Right. So that's so now randomly all of the sudden when like you were saying like a recipe, a, a new gardening technique or anything like that, but all of the sudden now she's a whiz on the dial up. Yeah, that's yeah, so I'm, I'm glad that at least looking, you know, further into it, 
it just kind of highlighted how strong the case was against him. It almost was like he kicked himself in, in the butt by having them bring this back up. Because it's like, now you really are, like it really looks, it really looks bad for you now. So now, um, so, mm, so this, that finished up recently right or last year in 2020 what's going on now with it i so i see that there's another another thing going, coming up in the court of appeals with him or so what happened was after the wisconsin court of appeals made this decision that it didn't matter the letter didn't matter there was so much other evidence that his conviction should stand hmm. then um mark jensen's mark jensen and his lawyers appealed it to federal court okay. and in federal court that court decided that um, the Wisconsin Court of Appeals got it wrong mm. that it wasn't harmless error and that Mark Jensen should have a new trial mm. so it came back to Kenosha County mm. and we were getting ready for trial again and the defense Mark Jensen filed a motion to keep out Julie's letter and to keep out all of Julie's statements to everyone. Mm. So we started to research that and wrote our motion in response and litigated and argued in front of the judge, you know what? The law has changed since 2008. Mm. Now the law has evolved and what Julie wrote in this letter is admissible now you know based on how the cases have progressed because it was a little bit more restrictive earlier on and then it got a little bit more expansive where the courts were kind of loosening up what would be admitted under this confrontation clause and it's called like what's testimonial and non-testimonial so since julie wrote the letter and she addressed it to the two officers including that officer she was friends with um that was originally considered to be testimonial because she was writing it to a police officer. Mm. But since then, the law has changed, saying, well, not everything you say to a police officer is testimonial. Mm. So we brought that up to the circuit court judge, to Judge Kirkman. We said, hey, you know, it's not testimonial anymore. So the letter is admissible and should be admissible. And, you know, there was a lot of, a lot of long briefs were written about it, a lot of arguing in court. And ultimately, Judge Kirkman said, you're right. It is, it is not testimonial, it is admissible. So then we filed another motion saying, well, now that it's admissible, then there's no need to have a new trial because the reason it was sent back by the federal court was they were saying there was constitutional and there was a constitutional error. Mm. And we said, well, now the error has been cured because if the admission of the letter was the mistake, and now the letter is admissible based mm. on current law, mm. then there's no error. Mm. So we don't need a new trial. Right. And Judge Kirkman said, yes, you're right about that too. Mm. So now that's being appealed. Oh, okay. So right, it went to the Wisconsin Court of Appeals on the issues. And then next, about a month ago, it was argued before the Wisconsin Supreme Court about whether Julie Jensen's letter is admissible under current law. Mm. So it's going to be a while. Wow. So, yeah, this is just, it seems like it's just like a never-ending thing. And, you know, someone like like him, I imagine he would use all of the energy that he could to kind of keep this thing. I mean, why not, I suppose? I mean, you have life in prison. And the only the only question I have about that is how, did, how is he funding all of, all of, all of this? Is well, it just... he's, he's not funding it. You're funding it. Oh, We're okay. All right. Yeah, okay. Mm, nice. Yeah. Yes. Okay. I mean, he paid for his trial lawyer right. back in 2008 with his own money, but then he ran out of money because mm. that was very expensive. Mm. He hired all kinds of experts. He hired the best lawyers. Mm. And so he has no more money. Mm. And so it's the taxpayers paying for the public defender's office. Oh, wow. Well, thanks. Mark Jensen for <laughs> making sure our tax dollars are going to where they should right, be. Right. Wow. I'm, yeah, there are a lot more people who could use a legal defense more than Mark Jensen. Yeah, I, I believe that, definitely. Wow, so that is, 
That is nuts. I can't believe, I mean, I won't say I can't believe that this happened right in our backyard because, I mean, all different types of things happen all over the place. People are people everywhere, and, you know, sometimes they allow their egos to allow them to do the wrong thing. Yeah, and it's just, I mean, it is so tragic. I, you know, I know we talk about it from kind of a clinical perspective because it's interesting legally and factually, but it's just tragic. It was tragic for Julie. It's tragic for her two children mm -hmm. who had to deal with this their entire childhood, essentially, and even now into adulthood. Right. And, you know, I don't know how you move past that kind of trauma upon trauma upon trauma. And, you know, my heart breaks for them. And, you know, I, I, part of why we fought so hard is because we wanted them to know that their mother loved them and would not have done this willingly. Mm. Um, sadly, their father put them through this. So it's it's sad, and Julie had four brothers who loved her very much. Mm. And she was the only girl in the family, and oh, wow. you know they too have struggled over the years. Oh yeah, I bet. Nice. Mm -hmm. Wow. Yeah. So there's a ripple effect, and I would like to think that it was just so worthless. You know, he killed her so that he could keep his money, keep his kids, and have his mistress. And he ended up losing it all. Oh. Lost the kids, lost the money, lost the mistress. Mm. He married her, then she divorced him. Mm. And, I mean, realistically, I mean, murdering someone is never, I mean, it's never really going to end the way that you, you know, you, I mean, it's, it was 1999 at the time. It was a while ago, but it was still, I mean, there was enough technology for any individual to really know, like, you're probably going to get caught. Like, petty crime, maybe you can get away with it, and you're going to slip up somehow, and, you know, it yeah. shows. It happened. And he did, actually, you know, he... <laughs> I mean, he slipped up in many ways, but one of the other things that we found or that, I, you know, as I'm talking to these witnesses, I was talking to this David who he worked with. And David said to me, you know, you should talk to this other guy who works for the same company because this guy, Ed Klug, has said some things over the years that makes me think that maybe he knows something, that he <laughs> might know that Mark Jensen killed his wife. So I find this guy, and I call him, and I talk to him, and I say, you know, Ed, what do you know? Come on, just please be honest with me. Tell me what you know. This is a big deal. It's important. And he said, well, I was at a conference with Mark Jensen in 1998, mm -hmm. just a, a month before Julie Jensen's death, maybe a month and a half. And he, we got drunk, and we were complaining about our marriages and complaining about our wives. And Mark Jensen said to me, well, you know, there are ways to kill your wife without anyone ever knowing. And you can find them on the Internet. And he said, and he even joked about www.howtokillyourwife.com. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, see? Yeah. Just takes a few drinks, and then the truth will come out. Wow. And then you think you're talking to someone that you can just, I suppose, casually talk about murdering your wife with and just assume, like, it won't come back. Oh, man, that is, wow. Well, I am really happy that he is in jail. Um, you know, I typically am like, I, I wouldn't really wish prison on anyone, but realistically, some people need to go to prison. Absolutely. We just have to be honest about it you know um some people shouldn't be able to just be free to just make decisions that can harm other people you know or inadvertently cause trauma to someone else like people that will manipulate a situation that can affect your children for the rest of their lives and not care just because of your what seems like weird obsession with, with Kelly or whatnot is just like all right. Well, yeah, you clearly are, you clearly are kind of a weirdo, and <laughs> it's not not really not really safe. You know, I mean, people are into their things or whatever, but red flags all around, I would say. Yeah. So, 
Is there anything else that you'd like to uh, touch on? I know there was a lot of um, interesting, like, maybe people that came in, just, like, witnesses. I know at, at one point there was, like, a, an inmate that claimed, like, he confessed, like, the killing to him and stuff like that. Did you deal with, like, a lot of maybe false statements, maybe people that were trying to be opportunistic or, you know, were they genuine in, you know, a lot of the, the claims that some people were making? Yeah, so there were... There were people who were trying to be opportunistic, but you know, when you, you've done this as long as we have been doing it, you know what to look for, mm. to know whether someone is just telling you what's already in the criminal complaint or out in the public domain. So when we talk to these people, we try to see if they know something that we know that nobody else knows, because mm. that'll confirm that they're telling the truth, right? Mm. So we did have a couple of inmates come forward. So one was this Aaron Dillard, who it truthfully is a con man. He was in jail, in prison for conning people. So not the nicest of people in this world. Mm. But when he was talking to us, he said he befriended Mark Jensen. And who better than a con man than to con Mark Jensen into confessing? Mm. So Mark Jensen confessed to him. And what he told us, which made us believe him, mm. is that Mark told him that he messed up by getting drunk with this Ed Klug mm. in St. Louis and saying things, saying these things to Ed Klug. And he said to Aaron Dillard, it's, I was actually, I had actually tried to kill Julie while I was in St. Louis. Like he had left some of the ethylene glycol mm. um, in something that she would consume. And he said to Aaron Dillard, it's a good thing she didn't die while I was gone because I, that was important because we knew that Mark, that Julie Jensen had been sick mm. while Mark was in St. Louis throwing up because Mark had complained about it to the detective Ratsburg when he talked to Ratsburg. Mm. He had taken some notes about it and I think Julie had even talked to someone about being sick those few days, throwing up and feeling horrible and not knowing why. And we also knew from the phone records that Mark Jensen had called home several times that those two days that he was gone. Mm. And we knew that he was in St. Louis with his mistress. So why would he be calling home if it wasn't to check up on Julie to see if she was dying? Mm. So that really clinched it. That was one of the things that clinched it for us to believe Aaron Diller. Plus he knew about the nose and being pressed into the pillow. So we believed Aaron Diller. You know, yeah, he's a criminal, but you know, criminals tell the truth too. Mm. It, so um, we had him, we did have him testify because we believed what he had to say. And then there was another inmate who came forward who said, well, Mark Jensen talked to me about wanting to get rid of Ed Klug as a witness before the trial. Mm. Now, Mark didn't, didn't want to go as far as killing Ed Klug, but he did want him just unavailable, removed, sat on. Mm. And we, we believed him because in getting ready for the trial, we had been listening to some of Mark Jensen's phone calls. Mm -hmm. And so this inmate told us, well, you know, my girlfriend talked to Mark Jensen. Mark Jensen was going to have my girlfriend talk to his mom to get the money to pay for me to have someone sit on Ed Kluge. Well, I remembered hearing that jail call. Mm. You know, they didn't use the precise words, but there was a call where Mark Jensen gets on the phone with this guy's girlfriend and talks about getting her the money. Mm. And he says the precise payments that um, David Thompson, the inmate, had told us about. So when you can put those two things together, then we know they're telling the truth. Mm, nice. Wow. It's just misstep after misstep, it seems like. Wow. Man. Well, luckily, um, I mean, at least for now, things are where they should be. And hopefully they remain that way. Um, but it's always interesting to see how 
you can get information on the inside too from individuals. Mm -hmm. um, you know, because like you said, just because he was a criminal doesn't mean that he wouldn't tell the truth, you know? Right. And just because, and I mean, he's a con man, right? Which isn't necessarily the, it's not the best thing to be. Right. But it's not a murderer. Right. Well, so. and that's the thing. Like, both these guys, Aaron Dillard and David Thompson, just were, you know, when we said, well, why are, why are you coming forward? David Thompson, in particular, was, like, just shocked at how cold-blooded Mark Jensen was. And he said, like, look, I may be a bank robber, mm. but I can't even... Killing the mother of your children is just... That goes too far. That's way beyond the pale. And he felt this obligation to come forward. Mm. Yeah, well, I mean, there's people, there's heroes in all levels of society. Yes, so that's, absolutely. That's, I mean, that's great to hear. That's definitely great to hear, you know. And, I mean, some people, I know, especially like in the street culture or whatever they say not to snitch on people or whatever but at the end of the day as a human being you have to have some sort of moral compass I hope and so. and right. you know and like you know like he said like hey i'm i may be a bank robber but murdering the mother of your children is that's a whole nother whole nother level that's yeah. that's crazy so Man, Angelina, thank you so much for coming in and talking about this. This is just, it's been super cool. I haven't done like a crime podcast at all, but I love super interesting, you know, topics and things like this, especially when they, you know, happen in your backyard. Uh, so this has been really exciting. I did, like I was telling you before, I did like a real big deep dive. I was watching all different types of interviews and like shows and like mini documentaries and stuff like this. So this was really cool to do. So thank you. Thank you so much. You're welcome. I really appreciate it. And, you know, I was asked when we were did the interview for Court TV, they asked, well, you know, what would you like people to take away from this case? And I really want to say <laughs> it's so important for women or anyone in general, but in particular women, if you are having these feelings, this instinct, if your gut is telling you that you're in danger, please take steps to protect yourself and protect your children because you just never know. I know people don't want to think the worst, but sometimes you just have to trust your intuition and take steps to protect yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree Hold wholeheartedly about that. And we have that gut instinct for a reason, you know, yeah. as as beings that have the luxury of being able to think for ourselves and to, you know, counteract the feelings that we have, clearly like Mark Jensen can do, um, you still have to listen to that gut feeling. You know, if you feel like you're in danger, even though your mind can't put it together, you still have to, you know, don't tuck it away. Right. Recognize that feeling and maybe put some guards up. Start looking around a little bit more or, you know, make sure that you have all your squares in a row. Absolutely. Because the, the last thing, we only have one life, you know. And if you're in a situation where you've brought more life into the world, you have to do what you can to help protect your own life to make sure that they're prepared for what can go on in the future for them as well. Because now, you know, we look at a situation, and this is a situation that happens with so many kids where they end up in a situation without their parents, for whatever it may be. And a lot of the time, it's something that the parents could have done to prevent their children being in a situation, right. you know? And sometimes it works out for the kids, mm -hmm. you know? But a lot of the time, it doesn't, no. so. No, it's never good for the kids. They, they, I mean, they just need their parents to be, to keep them safe and to love them and to offer kind of security and stability and. Yeah, it's sad when that doesn't happen. You're right. Like, I think a lot of the problems in our world and in our society could be avoided if kids just could have stable, loving parents. Mm. They don't have to live together, but they do have to be there. Right, right. And all of this could have been avoided if they would have just recognized that one thing. Like, right. we don't have to live together. Clearly, you know, like he seemed to want to move on. You know, there was instances where she thought maybe she wanted to as well. And I mean, not saying that trying isn't good, but at a certain point with so many years that have gone by, you, you have to, don't stay too too late, you right. know? 
because it, it'll end up being too late. So. Yes. so thank you. Yeah, no, thank you so much. And then uh, there's some big things happening with you coming up in the next few days, right? We're going to see um, yeah. what happens with the primary and everything, yeah. right? The so. primary is Tuesday, so please go vote. Do your research and hopefully vote for me. <laughs> um, but if not, just still go vote. Yeah, um, yeah, so I don't know. Can I do my plug? You can, yeah, go, you go. can find more information on um, AngieForJudge.com and on Facebook, also Angie for Judge. There's a lot of great information there, a lot of great endorsements and testimonials. And I do this Justice Minute every Monday, or excuse me, every Sunday, where I just talk about what I've done throughout my career. And it's real interesting, and I think it's important for people to be educated. And, you know, I think you can tell that I'm terribly committed to victims of crime and to Kenosha. And I just want to continue that commitment as judge. I think it's important for Kenosha to have an experienced and dedicated person as judge. Awesome. Well, thank you again for coming in. I definitely appreciate it. This was an amazing topic. Maybe, I don't know, sometime in the future, if there's another case or something that you'd like to talk about, we can do that as well. Um, but thank you everyone for tuning in. We definitely appreciate you. Um, please make sure you stop by her website and her Facebook page, Angie for Judge, for more information on her campaign, if that's something that interests you, or look up, you know, the Mark Jensen case and see all of the cool things that she was involved in with that as well. Thank you so much for tuning in. I've been your host, Corey Elijah. This has been another episode of O Word with Corey Elijah, and we will be back with another one for you very soon. Take it easy. Peace.